this evening I would like to give a commentary on a poem by the Vietnamese monk and peace worker and poet Thich Nhat Hanh. And the name of the poem is Call Me By My True Names. And before beginning the poem, we'd just like to speak for a few moments about Thich Nhat Hanh and then read the poem to you and also a short commentary that Thich Nhat Hanh himself has given with the poem. <coughs> Thich Nhat Hanh is Vietnamese and of course being Vietnamese has experienced the devastating horror and terror of war from one year's end to the next and all the suffering and violence which ensued because of the war and living in Vietnam and being a monk and being a man of sustained non-violence, he committed himself from his very early years to the work for peace, to reconcil reconciliation, and towards the healing of the scars of war, physical, psychological, and spiritual. Thich Nhat Hanh is now in his fifties and he lives in Plum Village in the western part of France. In 1966 he was the head, he, he, tra he began travelling and in the early seventies he was the head of the Buddhist peace delegation in Paris during the talks between the Vietnamese and the US and through his writings at that time and subsequently he's become known and very widely loved and respected. His books such as The Cry of Vietnam, The Miracle of Mindfulness, a book, The Raft is Not the Shore, which he co-authored with Dan Berrigan. And his most recent book, A Guide to Walking Meditation, had been very well received and loved, both by peace people in the peace movement, as well as people of practice. And to quite a considerable degree, in his tremendous work, he's acted as a facilitator and as something of a bridge in order that men and women can appreciate and understand that the work for peace cannot just be outer and it cannot just be inner, but it's an embracing of the totality, inner and outer. About <coughs> three 
years ago. He was here in the U.S. and he was sponsored by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a wonderful, wonderful organization that has worked for years for peace. And the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which is a branch of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And he gave a number of talks, workshops, and retreats in different parts of the states. And Thignat Han is a member of the International Advisory Board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, of which uh, I too have the great privilege of being on the same board, and of which uh, Jamie is a member of the Board of Directors here in the U.S. And I remember just one small story that a, a friend of mine told me with regard to the retreat that he sat in upstate New York with Thich Nhat Hanh, which incidentally is spelt T-H-I-C-H, first name, middle name N-H-A-T, and the surname, last name, H-A-N-H, Thich Nhat Hanh. And he, was, he sat a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, and it was a time for him to have an interview with him. And he went to his room, and he knocked on Thich Nhat Hanh's door, and there was a few, several seconds of silence. And then Thich Nhat Hanh opened the door, and my friend stand, standing on the other side of, of the door saw the door handle very slowly and very mindfully turning to open. And then he entered into the room and very quietly and very gently Thich Nhat Hanh walked, invited him in and walked to the seat. And a friend said, he didn't need to say anything more. The whole teaching was in the opening of the door. And those who have had the contact with Thich Nhat Hanh and I've never had the uh, opportunity to to meet with him and one day I hope to uh, sit with him uh, have all been touched by his goodwill and good, good humor and love and passion in the work for peace. This poem, please call me by my true names, has touched Perhaps all people that I've spoken to, and it's been used frequently on retreats by teachers in the Vipassana, in the mindfulness tradition, both for its sincerity, its honesty, and its ability to reach us. And perhaps that's always, of course, the, the, the purpose of true and truly beneficial Poetry. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest. To be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower. To be a jewel 
hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog, swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am a grass snake, who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant, selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up, and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. I wonder with the very flow and rhythm of our life, I wonder how we're so frequently moving on. Moving on in such a way that it's hardly giving ourselves an opportunity to arrive. And this moving on which takes, takes place in our life, it's like there's a, a push, an underlying push within ourselves which 
instead of giving us the opportunity to really arrive on this earth and really find out what that means we're pushed on to something else, something other and though it's not necessarily removed from this world it's as though the moving never gives us time to stop and be still and what it means to be here and to have arrived as a human being on this planet and it's like to use an analogy sitting in a car and driving at high speed past the nature and what we see is a kind of blur a kind of nature but not a nature which we really feel and which really touches us because if we do that if we are to feel and to experience life in that way we have to stop we have to, uh, have to feel that we've arrived and get out of that car, get out of the constant moving on and just be look deeply I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile learning to sing in my new nest to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone when we begin to arrive and begin to sense and particularly feel what that means perhaps something inwardly spiritually occurs inside of us in which the apparent substantiality of difference between oneself and a bud on a spring branch a tiny bird with wings still fragile a caterpillar in the flower perhaps that great difference in fact is not so great and perhaps what contributes to making the difference so different is the movement the movement of our mind and the repetition and the frequency and the continuity of it that it moves so much we can't sense we can't feel, we can't know with our deep abiding that that flower and that caterpillar and we ourselves are sharing something together and it's not that that changes everything dramatically Thich Han continues I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry in order to fear and to hope the rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive 
And sometimes in that rhythm of our heart, when we are sitting and being still and being mindful of the breathing, which Dignat Han speaks frequently about in his writings, we see the, and feel and experience the breathing and we see that in this movement too there's an extraordinary common denominator. The breathing comes and the breathing goes. It has its birth and it has its death. And though it might seem to be a similarity between one breath and the next, when we look deeply, when we are arriving in every second, there's no real repetition. No two breaths in their birth and their death are ever the same. Just as no two birds are, no two buds are, no two jewels are, no two caterpillars are. And so amidst all of this extraordinariness of life with it, and all of its diversity, we find ourselves meeting and experiencing again and again this extraordinary paradox of life. Sameness, but not sameness. We look with one set of eyes and we see sameness, we see unity, we feel unity, we experience oneness, and yet there's difference. And as we go deeper, second by second, moment by moment, both the similarity and the dissimilarity begins to show itself again and again and again. And as deep as we go, as deep as this extraordinary movement back and forth between sameness and not sameness shows itself in incredible subtleties. Because we've said we've arrived, we are arriving. We're willing to stop. And in Thich Nhat Hanh's book, A Guide to Walking Meditation, he says something rather beautiful and in a rather touching way. I always think that I like this world even better than I would the pure land because I like what the world offers. Lemon trees, orange trees, banana trees, pine trees, apricot trees and willow trees. Some people say that in the pure land there are valuable lotus ponds, seven gem trees and roads paved with gold, and that there are special celestial birds. I don't think I would like these very much. I would rather not walk on roads paved with gold and silver. I wouldn't even use roads that were lined with marble here on earth. Dirt roads with meadows on both sides are my favourite. I love pebbles and leaves covering the ground. I love bushes, streams, bamboo fences and ferries. When I was a young novice, I told my master, if the pure land doesn't have lemon trees, then I don't want to go. 
Sometimes in the division of our mind and the way that we relate to the world, we view it in a very simplistic and, and frequently with a somewhat unquestioning obedience to the conformer, in terms of conforming to the patterns of mind, we make the division of this is me, self, and that out there is not me, not myself. And we make, take this, make this division as though it's the ultimate truth of things, the final reality, the real way things are. And when we do that, of course, we find ourselves in that very movement of mind, picking out things from the world which we want to have, possess, identify with and own. Because if we don't do that, the self has no support for itself. It must have, it must get, it must gain, it must acquire to keep it there. And sometimes in that there's this forgetfulness a forgetfulness that what is truly wondrous and miraculous and mysterious in life doesn't require ownership. The dirt roads with the meadows, the pebbles and leaves covering the ground, the bushes and the streams, the fences and the ferries. And when, in that, when we are touched, and when there is that awareness which is embracing and, and genuinely choiceless in the communication with life, then what really reaches has got nothing to do with self wanting not self. It's got to do with an, another whole level of depth altogether in which you and I can receive can be touched by without the movement of self. And then perhaps in this unusual world with all of its diversity in it, perhaps we begin to see a little bit of what might be called a pure land. I am I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayflower metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. And sometimes, too, in our being and our walking on this, walking on this earth. With our thought, with our ideas, with our judgments and our conclusions, we form hard and fixed views of good and bad, right and wrong, cruel 
and unjust and what is not. And we tend to transplant, I feel, transfer these kind of views onto the nature. The frog being eaten by the snake. The bird taking the mayfly. And perhaps there in this world that we are participating in, it's simply that this activity in this process and dynamic of life is taking place. But where violence occurs, where injustice occurs, where the lack of understanding of wholesomeness and unhealthiness and unwholesomeness isn't so much to be pinpointed in the lives of creatures, in the lives of, of animals and fish and reptiles and the birds of the air. Perhaps that condition is rather to be pointed into our, and looked at in terms of our own lives. Rather than, as we so easily do, transfer that onto the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the fish kingdom. And if our judgments and our right and wrong and good and bad with regard to the nature drops away, then again perhaps there's a, a new empathy with. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. Such stark contrasts in life with all the injustice which accompanies it is one very difficult for heart and mind, I feel, to deal with. To deal with in a clear and balanced way. And we know it is in our Western world. All of us have to take responsibility. And one of the questions which is taking place, and a very important one, in the peace movement, in the thoughtful, caring peace movement, is the question, who is the enemy? Because what has happened, and not surprisingly given the nature of divisiveness within our minds, is that we have this tendency, and we see it in ourselves, finding expression of putting the blame somewhere, finding fault with, in that sometimes aggressive and judgmental way we fall into, because our heart in some way or other is reaching out or trying to reach out to the oppressed, to the underprivileged, to that child in Uganda who's all skin and bones. And we've been informed and we're informed again and again of this situation. We know how much and how many privileges that we have. 
And just sometimes, something is able to touch, and to touch deeply, and it brings a response. If it's a genuine response, it's a giving one. If it doesn't bring about a giving response, it's simply a feeling. And that feeling may be important to the degree, but it isn't compassion. Compassion is never and never was a feeling. Compassion is an action. And when the action is there for us, there is the compassion. And yet, as I say, the division of the mind is to place blame because we, the West, are the main producers of the arms, the main exporter of the arms. And though we pride ourselves on not having a war, world war for the last 30 years, etc., etc., we've exported it. And yet, when we say they, the military, the government, the president, and so forth, we create this separation with all the aggression that can accompany it. And so one of the questions and one of the ways of working with this is instead of saying they, we, we have created this situation. We are responsible for it. And we have to explore ways, all of us together, to change this monstrous situation and the violation of life. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. And in this, Tignat Han has written a commentary on this passage. And I remember being here a year ago, and Jamie said to me that he, was, he would read one evening at the end of the day this, the poet, this poem. And knowing this poem rather well, and having been touched by this poem, as many are, I remember my immediate re reaction was some concern because of the potency of this particular verse. And it touched, it reminded me of a dear friend of mine, Ajahn Gowid, he, he was a monk, and rather radical in his ideas, we both had the same teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he went to an island in the Gulf of Siam, and with a handful of monks, they began to establish a somewhat similar kind of monastic setting in which the monks did their practice, lived the monastic life, but also, which is not 
known in Theravada began to grow their own, own plants, their own vegetables and fruit trees. And each day would practice Tai Chi and live communally in a different kind of way. And during the period of time that uh, Ajahn was there, came Adamo, his Buddhist name, some of the bodies of the Vietnamese refugees on the boats were washed up on the island. And some had been brutalized and shot and, and they'd been robbed and the boats had been run down. And he protested, he protested vigorously to the Thais and to the Thai pirates. To such a degree that it be, his life was threatened, it became quite unsafe for him. And he had to leave and he came to stay with us and friends in Germany and several months with other friends in, in Australia before it was safe enough for him to return. And all this is a harsh and brutal fact, brutal reality too of life and in stark contrast to the bud which arrives on the spring branch. And Tignan Han says, in the slight preview, in the preview to the poem, I have a poem for you. It is called, Please Call Me By My True Names. The poem is about three of us. The first is a 12-year-old girl one of the boat people crossing the Gulf of Thailand. She was raped by a sea pirate. After that, she threw herself into the ocean. The other person is the sea pirate who was born in a remote village in Thailand. And the third person is me. I had a lot of problems because I was very angry, of course. But I could not take sides against the sea pirate. If I could, it would be easier for me, but I did not, because I thought that if I were born in his village and were living his kind of life, economic, educational and so on, it is very likely that I would now be that sea pirate. So it is not easy to take sides in this respect. And out of suffering, I wrote this poem. Please call me by my true names, because I have several names. And when you call me by my names, I have to say yes. And perhaps that that communication to us. is to reach us, reach ourselves, reach into ourselves in such a way that this separation and pinpointing and all that accompanies it is unsatisfactory. And yet in not in such a way that you and I deny the realities of life and deny the stark polarities which we have to face with day and day day in and day out. But it is to be in touch with them. 
it is to know about them, it is to experience the laughter and the crying and the fear and the hope. And so that not in any way are we turning our back on life, but we're touching somewhere in which our heart reaches out equally to the pirate as to the twelve-year-old girl on the boat. I'm a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I'm the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. And that old saying that we use sometimes has a relevance and an importance for us. There but for the grace of God go I. And how we see in our life and the movement and expression of our life in a way the enormity of the good fortune of sitting here today being together spending a day together free, very free to say what we wish to say feel our life feel the nature around us feel safe and secure in the knowledge that our action isn't going to be destroyed that we have some degree of freedom and whereas many of our brothers and our sisters on this planet in countless numbers of movements political, social, religious, spiritual live under threat every day. Right now, in countless places all over the planet, in this country and in other countries. And as our heart must reach out for those, it also must reach out and work with those who are not only prisoned but the jailers as well. My life, my joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. And in that fullness of our being, with our pain and with our joy, allowing ourselves to experience it and be in touch with it in such a way that it's no longer my pain, it's no longer my joy, but it's the joy of the earth. It's the pain of the earth. And in our joy and in our pain, we are unusually close to life and to each other. Tignahan says, Worry and sorrow cling to our lives and we want to let them go. How shall we do this? Take firm, calm steps. Take courageous steps. Be alert to your burdens of worry and sorrow. 
strong-willed in your determination to put them down. Ask yourself, why should I wish to keep this weight on my shoulders? From such awareness, decide to let worry and sorrow fall away. If you want to, you can. Like taking off a raincoat and shaking off all the raindrops that are clinging to it. And with us, and within ourselves and the potential of ourselves, all is possible. Never underestimate the capacity of heart and mind to let go, to give up, to shred. It has been the testimony of women and men for generations. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. In this poem, which has been, thousands of copies of this poem has been printed and we who are connected with the peace, peace work have given out thousands of them on peace marches and on demonstrations and on friends because it serves as a vehicle. It serves as a vehicle for all of us so that we can wake up and so the door of the heart can be left open, the door of compassion. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings live with wisdom. Let's have two or three minute quiet period together, please. The subject for the evening talk is a commentary on a poem by the South American poet Pablo Neruda and the poem is Keeping Quiet and some Years ago, I was, while I was here at Barry, in fact, I was introduced 
both to the poetry of Pablo Neruda and also this particular poem by a friend, uh, Brian. And one of those poems which I and those of you here who know this poem, I'm sure, love and appreciate dearly. Firstly, I would just, just like to spend uh, just a few minutes speaking about the poet and then from there read the poem to you and then take it verse by verse. Pablo Ruda is Chilean, was born in Paral in 1904 and, very, and was born the son of a, a railway worker. His mother died when he was three or four years old and Neruda, which is an, actually the name of, uh, his name was a poet, um, was born in a region of Chile which was one which would, one might dis describe as wild, as un untamed, in a far out region of Chile. And many of his poems, in some way or other, not only reflect, reflect the immediate perceptions of life, but also mirror to some of the past and some of his early childhood. And it wasn't long, in fact, in his teens when Neruda established himself in Italy as a poet and received a number of awards when he was in his mid-teens at college. And by the age of 20, and that was in the mid-1920s, was being regarded in Chile as one of the foremost poets of the country. And with Neruda, through the years of the 1920s and 30s, he travelled extensively, spending periods of time in Asia, in Rangoon, in Colombo, in Singapore, um, constantly throughout this period writing poetry, and, and was something of a, a representative for Chile engaged in various forms of, I understand, of diplomatic work. And then, during the mid-period of the Second World War, he became the consul for the Chilean government and spent a period of time in uh, Mexico. And during, or rather, just after this period of time, he became uh, a, he was a Marxist, became a member, a very active member of the Communist Party in Chile, and he felt, as a number of uh, poets have done from uh, South America particularly, that the expression and concerns about life and the communication of feelings into the realities of life can and fit in with the concerns of, that Marx had with regard to the poor and the underprivileged uh, and all the disparities that are prevalent within, within society. And so Neruda moved from being 
a poet to an activist and began to make in a very clear and direct way the bridge between the two. And in the latter part of the 1940s, 48 and 14, 49, it came about in Chile and again in the year of his death in 73, this which seems to beset some societies, uh, uh, a virulent um, anti-communist campaign and he and a number of others, intellectuals, poets, activists, union leaders who were Marxists, were expelled from Chile and he then fled out of Chile, went to Europe, to China, to Russia, to back to Mexico. And all of this time that there's a constant creative process through the pen taking place with Neruda. And there are, there are kind of phases, as many poets and artists and those of you who are involved in the creative field know, in which in periods of li life tend to represent one's concerns and Neruda is no exception to that. During, during the 50s and then certainly into the 60s, Neruda began to gain greater and greater acclaim to the point that by the 1960s and 1970s he was and still is regarded as, in the contemporary um, period that, uh, that we are living in, the foremost poet of South America. And when Sartre, the uh, philosopher, French existentialist, was offered the Nobel Prize for literature, Sartre said, this is in, in 63, this prize ought to go to Neruda. He is the one on this planet who deserves it. And some, a few years later, as was appropriate, Neruda received a Nobel Prize. Then came that very, 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 very tragic period of uh, Chilean history in 73 when there was the, the plot and the undermining of this uh, progressive and reasonably caring and thoughtful Allende uh, government which was um, replaced by a right-wing military regime. And in that period of time, um, Neruda died. So the name of the poem is Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth let's not speak in any language. Let's not stop. For one second, sorry, let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars 
wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. <laughs> now I'll count up to twelve and you keep quiet and I will go. Now we will count to twelve in the first verse and we will all keep quiet. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It's one of these peculiar phenomena of life and the whole movement of life. It's as though we participate in this life, and life is a field of experience, what else is it? It is simply a field of experience. And that we participate in it, and we carry within this participation an underlying idea. And the idea is propelling us. And this idea of being propelled, which is propelling us, believes assiduously and in, with almost an unquestioning obedience that by doing more, that by being more active, we'll achieve more. And we have this based to some degree, of course, on our past experiences. When we have done this, this and this, there's been a certain kind of accomplishment in life and on this idea and foundation, we move in life to the next thing. And so life becomes one of constant moving with the attempt and the endeavour in all fields to maintain this process in the belief that this is really leading somewhere. That this is taking us as the person and as humanity somewhere. And then we support this underlying idea 
with all sorts of theories of progress, such an important concept in our society, evolution, getting on, and we forget the count to twelve. We forget what it, the significance of what it is just to stop for one second and not move our arms so much. And I wonder if with us, in whatever the social context and social reality of our everyday situation, we were just to apply that idea. The idea that something is fully achieved and actually finds its own fulfillment, not in doing, which is the pre prevalent idea, but in non-doing. Not in action, but in non-action. And that as much as being said in life and communicated with regard to, uh, to non-action, as it is with regard to action. To stop and to be still. It would be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines, we would all be together in a sudden strangeness. You may possibly, as I'm sure Neruda in the communication of language to us here, may have had some sense of this from time to time in our sittings. I recall this morning just giving a reminder, a reminder to each one of us here. Not only with regard to verbal silence, but also with regard to bodily silence. And just a few words were said about being a little bit more aware of the sounds that we create in the throat. Or, and all the usual forms of um, bodily sound that we create. And one of you left a small note on the uh, clip for me. And basically the content of it was um, an appreciation for the reminder. And also the person said, well, why didn't you say this a few days ago? And one of the things which I've noticed, just through time and retreats and so forth, that one can say such things on the first day and on the second day. But it's like the consciousness and the meditative process has to reach a certain level, collectively, together. Then we hear it. Then it registers, then it touches us deeply, deeply enough that we say, 
I want to give more care. I want to be still. I want to stop for a second. And sometimes, quite spontaneously, in the flow of, of the sittings, the attention has opened, I'm sure as it is done for you, as it's done for me, opens out quite spontaneously. And one senses and feels the silence. And there is, in that moment, and those moments, the seeing that we are all together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. And sometimes in our sitting here, there comes about a sensitivity in which one's heart's wish and desire is truly not to harm. And there comes about Two, all of us being the man who's gathering salt and we look at our hurt hands when we're sitting here. Our hurt hands symbolically representing any aspect, any part of our body. Because we've stopped, because we are keeping quiet, because we're looking. And Neruda elsewhere In speaking of these, speak something which sometimes we discover, that same sudden strangeness, sometimes when just walking in the nature. I see a bee circling, now the bee is no more. Little fly of the paraffin legs, while your flight strikes again, I bend my head helplessly. I follow a strand that leads to some presence at least a fixed point of thought. I hear silence adorning itself with the billows' successions. Vertiginous echoes resolve and return, and I sing out aloud. And sometimes in that total non-action, complete non-doing, we see the bee circling. And there is a silence there, that powerful, awesome silence which cannot be held, kept, preserved, so utterly intangible, yet such a presence. And the silence adorns itself with the wings of a bee. And then the Ruda in his poem takes it further. It expands out as we must do and, and explore ways and means to find out what this silence is in the vast sphere of life. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, will put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. And yesterday, a good friend of mine, who comes here regularly, 
who's uh, an economist, an academic, who is teaching, lecturing, and is working with people who live in the third world, particularly Africa. And he himself is South African. And then when he came to see me, he said something was on my mind, on his mind, and he wanted to speak with me about. And it was about a remark, in fact, that I had made a couple of years ago in the hall here, I was making a, a political comment, in which he said, which to me in, in result, in which I said initially, comment in which there was a, a tone and a feeling of divisiveness which was made, in which there was a, a sharp criticism of a group of people and the political posture that they were, they were taking. And he said how, and his, his words, in terms of Militant non-violence, which is the feeling that he got when he was listening to me, how easily such a position and such a, a standpoint, when there's a turn of militancy to it, actually becomes self-defeating. It becomes and expresses itself and is communicated without one realizing it as a reaction to militant violence, to violence. And in that, there's obviously a divide which is established. And when that divide is established, he said, there is no meeting place, because the diversity of ways of looking at the world are so polarized. And one group or individual cannot comprehend or understand the other. And therefore, some other way, and this I think with this, to some degree, this verse addresses this, in which there is the recognition of differences, but exploring the ways and means to establish some, some other kind of connection. And if one takes wars, rather than seeing it as they create wars, they prepare for wars, they are the investors in the armaments industry, they are risking our lives, which creates that divisiveness. What he said and what we discussed for um, an hour or so yesterday is that we have to look at it collectively. We have to look at it in a way in which we are stating and communicating and, and feeling that we have created this situation. We are responsible for it. We, humanity, have, have made it as it is. And come out of the divisive way of looking and more to looking from a standpoint of totality. And perhaps if that is possible, if we can explore that way, way together, 
Perhaps there may be an opportunity to put on clean clothes and to walk about with brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. And sometimes too, isn't it, in our confusion, we see non-doing as inactivity. And there's a and a confusion of the mind between the two. Non-doing is being still and counting up to twelve. And in that, that renewal can take place. And out of non-doing comes pure doing. And men and women for centuries have given testimony to this. Out of just sitting, which is not doing anything special at all, it's just sitting. Out of just walking, out of just being present, not doing in any kind of familiar mode with regard to what doing is all about. Out of this non-doing can come a pure expression of life. And in it and of itself, it is a pure expression. And so often, isn't it, in life, we, we feel we're not ready, or we're not qualified, or we don't know enough, and we refer in our capacity to do totally from the past. And yet, historically, women and men seem and do find an energy and a, an awareness and an action in which, as it were, they come out of the earth. They come out of the present. And though their past lives and what they, past situation, what they were, didn't seem in any way to prepare them for it. And yet that woman, that man, that group emerges without any real preparation, without any real training, there is that flowering. And perhaps, there, perhaps consciously or not, there was an, a realizing of what not doing means. The transcendent significance of it. And our situation here, the social reality for us, if it is anything, it is not doing. Luda says, I go lonely among scattering substances, rain falls and resembles me. In its monstrous derangements, it resembles me. Even rain in a dead world goes lonely, repelled in its downfall, with no resolute form. 
And sometimes in our non-doing, in our just being here, having seen all the diversity of what is taking place of the sensations and the movement and expressions of thought and, and the randomness of it. And sometimes we open our eyes on a rainy, on a rainy day and we see the drops of the nature, the, the fall, of, fall of the rain, and we look outwardly and we look inwardly and we say, perhaps the difference isn't as vast. Perhaps the gulf between ourselves and those drops of rain are not so great as we assume. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Just recently, a friend had spent some time in India. And for some of us who have had the joy and the sadness of walking in India, there is there, as with many other places on our earth, a sense of the various extremes of life. And sometimes, when one feels all of this, and I've noticed a number of times, and I've been to India some 15 or 16 times, one comes to the evening, just as you, and the, equally with the extraordinary sunset that we are privileged to experience here. One comes to the evening times in India or elsewhere, and one's heart, mind, one's whole being looks at the sunset. And sometimes the sun, and one looks at it closely, seems far bigger than it's ever appeared before. And it's like at times there's a closeness, an intimacy, a, a familiarity. And when one is reading the poetry of Neruda, and I feel, if I may say, in this, that for us as, if I may say, for, as people, and, and for us as men who so very easily forget non-doing and become alienated from the deeper intimacies of our feeling, Neruda is an extraordinary poet for touching us, for touching us as, as men or as people who feel alienated. And in that, the feeling life and the emotional life and the world around are in no way separate from each other, completely intermingled with each other. 
And when, it's, when Rudra is speaking of love, when he is speaking of poverty, when he is speaking of the trees and the, and the rivers and the rain, this feeling presence is constantly there, and not in a, a romantic idealist way, but the way this world is, with all its diversity. And a friend who has just spent some nine months in India, and has just and spent, in fact, some nine years in the last 17 years, a Westerner, a Canadian, came back to our hometown of Totnes, spiritually very much renewed, and we were having in the evening some small, going into the night house, some small group discussions, meditative, and looking at the relationship of mind to silence. And at one, two points in, those, in that one of those meetings, we all rather spontaneously just stopped. And no words, no movement, nothing that we could say in any way could touch on that silence. And it just filled the, all the cells. It filled that, that living room. And the very presence of it was permeating the deeper regions of ourselves. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. And it's like in our life, and I think sometimes the, the psychics and the sages share a common perception with each other. They share the perception that rather than you seeing life as an opportunity to fulfill personal ends, rather reviewing viewing life and reviewing our connection with life as an opportunity to learn. And perhaps you and I finally are actually here to learn. Not just learn at one level of ourselves, but learn throughout the totality of our life. And that learning attitude in all situations gives life a validity. What can the sunset teach us? What can the earth tell us? What can the rainfall reveal to us? What can the psychological climate show to us? What can we give each other? Then Pablo Neruda concludes Now I'll count up to twelve and you keep quiet and I will go.
and your beings. Be still. May all beings stop for one second. May all beings be touched by that huge silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.